Prestige heads, and welcome to your weekly free American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison. And there is a lot going on in the world this week, as there always is. So, Derek, why don't we just get into it and why don't you tell us a little bit about the Lebanese election? So, uh, Lebanese voters went to the polls on Sunday. Uh, this is a, a, an interesting election in that uh, there were some. There's some hopes that Lebanon will finally, after many decades, really, uh, be able to shed the baggage of a very corrupt, uh, ineffective political class uh, and move toward some kind of reform, political and economic reform. Lebanon has, of course, been mired in an economic crisis for uh, quite some time now. Uh, the Lebanese uh, lira has collapsed in value, and there have been protests in the streets. Uh, the country's running out of electricity. It's running out of gasoline. It's running out of pretty much everything. Uh, the war in Ukraine is probably going to put its food stocks you know, at critical levels. So it's a, it's, it's a lot of problems, basically. Uh, and many of them stem from the fact that that there is a very staid and uh, I think uh, not very effective political elite that's been running this country for uh, quite some time now. I actually have all the reasons not to vote for the traditional party. Yeah. They killed our people. They stole our money. They are corrupt people. They damaged our system. They incorporated the clientelism system in Lebanon. I'm voting for new candidates, for new faces, because we, we want a new Lebanon. Uh, so there was hope uh, of some kind of big change. Uh, what emerged appears to have been a change of a sort. It's too soon, I think, to say how uh, significant a change. Uh, but the new parliament that emerged from this, emerges from this election uh, is going to look a bit different. The parliamentary alliance uh, that's been organized around Hezbollah and its uh, coalition partners lost its parliamentary majority. Uh, in contrast, the Lebanese Forces Party, which is a, a Maronite Christian party, fairly right wing, uh, looks like it will gain seats. And the big winners seem to be uh, a group of independent candidates who have emerged out of these protests over, uh, you know, economic failures and corruption uh, that have been taking place over the past two to three years. Uh, a number of them seem to have uh, done quite well. I think maybe a dozen of them were. Uh, one seats in the parliament, and they could serve uh, really in a, in a sort of kingmaker role. So it, it's too soon to say how this is going to all shake out. Nobody has a majority at this point. No, there's no obvious kind of coalition majority, uh, which could mean gridlock, uh, but it could mean that there's some uh, room for these independents to maneuver and, and kind of uh, put forward a reform agenda. Uh, turnout was very low. It was around 41%. If there's any country's electorate that has earned the right to be fed up with voting. It is certainly Lebanon, so that's not surprising. Um, but that's where things stand. So the big the big takeaway is uh, that that uh, the Hezbollah uh, and and PALS bloc uh, lost its majority, and these independents have uh, kind of moved in who who could shake things up a bit. And do you think this will have any regional effects, or is this going to be uh, you know? Um confined to domestic politics. I'm particularly thinking about Lebanon's relationship with Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um, well, Le I mean, Lebanon is uh, kind of caught in terms of Israel, the big dynamic is is sort of Hezbollah versus the IDF, and uh, Hezbollah is almost a state within a state, so it's it's very hard for the Lebanese government to uh, do anything about that, even were it inclined to to try to do something about it. But uh, in terms of Lebanon's relationship with the Saudis and with Iran, there, there's this sort of perpetual tug of war. Uh, between those two countries, and they back different factions. The Saudis have backed, uh, had backed Saad al-Hariri's, for example, uh, future movement, which was a, the the dominant Sunni faction, sat out this election. Uh, Saad al-Hariri announced that he was, uh, to great fanfare, that he was uh, leaving politics. He was fed up with the the system. I suspect he'll be back at some point. But, uh, you know, the, the Saudis had sort of backed them. The, the Iranians, of course, have been supporting uh, Hezbollah for 
decades now, and and they've come to support some of the uh, parties that have organized around Hezbollah. Uh, the, di- the the dynamic in in that relationship is interesting because it's uh, Iran it, 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 Iran's approach to to Lebanon is much more carrot than stick. And the Saudi approach to Lebanon has been much more stick than carrot. So uh, when the Saudis try to influence Lebanese politics, they do things like ending subsidies or imposing an embargo on Lebanese goods or, uh, you know, things to try and hurt the Lebanese economy or hurt uh, these forces that they see as hostile to Saudi interests. What that inevitably winds up doing is opening up more space for Iran to kind of move in and, uh, you know, provide support to Lebanon and try to earn some some soft power uh, capital in, in, you know, with the Lebanese public. Uh, it's It'll be interesting to see if the Saudis try something different now that Hezbollah is not, as I say, sort of uh, in the majority or in the majority coalition, uh, if they try to do something uh, a little less punitive and approach Lebanon with a, a, a bit more of a uh, a carrot kind of a, 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 a sort of carrot over the stick, I guess. Um, again, it depends on how I think the the new parliament looks when everything kind of shakes out, and it's uh, it's still t- very early to to speculate on that. And we'll keep on uh, updating you about what's going on there. So let's turn to Libya, which Derek, I'm surprised to learn there's been fighting there, given that the United States and NATO liberated Libya over <laughs> ten years ago. Uh, yes. So what's been yeah, going on? Amazingly, uh, they, I think you know. I think we can say the Libyans have let let us down, frankly, let NATO <laughs> down. Uh, no, um, I mean, obviously people know there's been a, a civil war in Libya since the since NATO's generous intervention to get rid of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. That war came to uh, something of an end last year with the formation of what was supposed to be a national unity government under uh, a prime minister, uh, Abdelhamid Dibeba. Uh, who was appointed, kind of chosen by a, a council or a group of uh, L- Libyan grandees that was assembled by the United Nations. Uh, there has been renewed controversy over Debeba's appointment or his uh, kind of term in office because he was appointed in March and was supposed to oversee new elections that were supposed to take place by December of, of last year. Those and elections did, take did not take place. No. Oh, my God. Uh, amazingly oh my enough, the, the factions were not able to agree on a uh, an electoral law. They weren't able to agree on, you know, the constitutional changes that might have been needed to, to hold new elections. And so the elections never took place. Uh, what's happened since then is the, the they're, they're competing parliaments. So there's one parliament, sort of an advisory body that, that sits in Tripoli and there's one that sits in an eastern uh, Libya in Tobruk, and they're sort of the, the political bases of the sides that were fighting the civil war. The parliament in Tobruk decided that Debeba's mandate had ended uh, with the failure to hold elections, uh, that he was out, and they appointed a new prime minister, Fatih Bashaga, uh, who had actually been the interior minister in the government in Tripoli, which makes things very interesting because uh, they're trying to, it was clearly an attempt to try and bridge the east-west divide. Uh, so they appointed Fatih Bashaga as the new prime minister, but Debeba didn't go anywhere. So now Libya has two prime ministers, which sounds an awful lot uh, like having two factions again, which takes you back to the battle days uh, of the Civil War. So there's been a lot of concern now with these two guys kind of banging around uh, that they were going to re-spark uh, the Civil War. That that concern started to play out uh, on Tuesday when Bashaga, who has now formed his cabinet and has the backing of uh, some number of militias, attempted to muscle his way into Tripoli, it seems like. Uh, that triggered the militias that already occupied Tripoli who are aligned with Debeba to respond, to resist this attempted move into the city. Uh, there was some fighting. At least one person was killed. I, I don't know if it was a combatant uh, or a civilian who was caught in the crossfire. Uh, Bashaga's forces eventually withdrew. Uh, he's now going to set up a competing government in the city of Sirt, which is sort of midway between east and east and west, situated in the midpoint of Libya uh Mediterranean coast and so uh yeah there's really i mean the the prospects of a return to the civil, to uh the full-blown civil war have have not uh 
uh, been higher, Dimmed. I think. Uh, well, yeah. I think they're they're higher now than they've been at any time since uh, the UN sort of orchestrated this uh, unity government and put Dabiba in power uh, back in March. So things are looking fairly grim uh, at this point for Libya, I would say. <laughs> As usual, things are looking grim. Well, things look grim everywhere, but, uh, you know, maybe we'll have to do another intervention. Well, why don't we go now a little north and talk about the problems that um, Finland and Sweden have been confronting in their attempt to join NATO? Uh, Yeah, there's really one problem, and that's Turkey. Uh, NATO does everything by consensus, so admitting a new member uh, requires the assent of all current member states. Finland and Sweden have now both formally submitted their applications to join NATO. They announced uh, late last week, both of them announced late last week that they were going to do that. They've now done it. But the Turkish government, and and in particular Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, have said, no, we're not prepared to go through with that. Uh, there are a number of factors here. Most of them seem to, or the, the main ones seem to have to do with uh, kind of a Swedish relationship with, but also Finland to some degree, a uh, relationship with the Kurdistan Workers' Party or PKK uh, and its uh, sort of affiliated uh, organizations in the Middle East. Uh, Turkey regards the PKK as a terrorist organization. Uh, Sweden does not. Finland does not. Uh, there are PKK officials, members who have, you know, come and go between, or you know, in those countries. And the Turks want, uh, they're, they're demanding uh, that both Finland and Sweden designate the PKK and its uh, affiliates as terrorist organizations. They've apparently submitted a list of 33 people uh, who they say are in Finland and Sweden now affiliated with the PKK or possibly with uh, the Fethullah Gulen organization, the Gulen organization also considered a terrorist organization by Turkey, but not really by anybody else uh, or not not by very many other countries at least. Uh, they want those people repatriated really extradited would be a better term, to Turkey, uh, where they would almost certainly stand trial. They've gotten no response from either Finland or Sweden to that list. I have to say something very sincere and direct. Neither country holds a clear stance against terrorist organizations. The Turks also, uh, they've outlined, this is uh, this was a reporting in Bloomberg uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, they've outlined a number of demands or, you know, sort of things that they would like to see happen uh, before they acquiesce to Finland and Sweden joining the club. Uh, they would also like Finland and Sweden to lift uh, restrictions that they imposed on the export of weapons to Turkey. Uh, both countries imposed restrictions back in 2019 when Erdogan sent his military into northeastern Syria. Uh, you may recall Donald Trump uh, <laughs> talking to Erdogan on the phone and abruptly announcing that the United States no longer cared about northeastern Syria, at which point Turkey invaded. It became a big mess. Trump had to walk it back and, and everything kind of uh, uh, established on a new front line. Well, there were there were a number of countries that imposed penalties on Turkey, most mostly in the, the realm of export controls uh, on weapons. Finland and Sweden were two of them. Uh, neither of those countries is a big exporter of weapons to Turkey or was a big exporter of weapons to Turkey in the first place. But the Turks have, have sort of viewed these things as insulting and, and they would like to see them removed. The rest of the items on this list don't really have very much to do with Finland and Sweden. So Turkey wants to be re-included in the F-35 program, which they were booted out of when they purchased the Russian-made s 400 air defense system. They would like Congress to move forward on, on approving the sale of a number of F-16s to Turkey, and they would like to see sanctions that have been imposed by the U.S. Uh, under an act called the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, or CATSA. Uh, they would like to see those sanctions, which were imposed again over the S-400 purchase, they would like to see those lifted. It's unclear uh, you know, how many, like where the red line is here or what Turkey would be prepared to accept because they're not going to get all of this, but, you know, they, they may uh, be able to get some of it. I don't know where Erdogan draws the line or if he's drawn a line, uh, he can he can be fairly stubborn. So I, I, I don't know at this point. Uh, it's hard to know what uh, what their end game is here. Does this suggest anything broader about NATO expansion or is this really just some intra-European thing that doesn't really bode differently for anything else? 
Um, I don't know that it it has anything to say about NATO expansion because this is really a problem of Turkey's fit in the alliance, and it it it's rooted in things that don't really have anything to do with Finland and Sweden. Although you know there are uh, issues like the PKK relationship and the the these weapons uh, holds that that Turkey doesn't like. But the real grievances here are that Turkish foreign policy does not align very well with the sort of NATO consensus, and yet Turkey is, uh, you know, a very early NATO member. It's probably, uh, in military terms, the the second most important member of the alliance behind the U.S. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it, these are more fundamental questions to me about whether this alliance can hold together in the long term, whether it expands or not, just because just as, as sort of, you know, member state priorities change. Uh, and Turkey has been out of step with NATO for uh, quite some time now. Yeah, it's almost gone while, to war yeah. a couple of times with with Greece, which is another NATO member and one that Erdogan has cited as sort of, uh, you know, was a mistake to let Greece in. Let's not make the same mistake by letting uh, Finland and Sweden in. So, I mean, this is uh, th- these are these are deeper issues to me that that uh, cut to the uh, the stability of the alliance, leaving aside expansion. Speaking of NATO, why don't we now talk about Ukraine and developments in the war there? Uh, so the main development on the ground, the, the front line's been pretty static, although there was some some heavy fighting reportedly over the weekend, particularly on the kind of way to Izium, the, the Ukrainians having uh, mostly succeeded in relieving the Russian pressure on Kharkiv, uh, really pushing the Russians away from that city. They seem to be advancing now on Izium, uh, which is uh, located kind of right on the edge of the, the Donbass region uh, and is is one of the points, the axes from which uh, the Russians have been uh, trying to advance on Ukrainian forces that are in the Donbass. Uh, so that's interesting, you know, worth watching, but, but it doesn't seem like there's been much progress uh, in that regard. Where there has been progress is in Mariupol, uh, the city that's been sort of the center of attention for quite some time now, which has been under was under a Russian siege for many weeks, and then uh, the Russians took most of the city and they were besieging the Azovstal steel plant. Uh, the last defenders of the city were sort of holed up there, uh, along with some number of civilians. The civilians were evacuated uh, last week. Uh, this week, the combatants, the defenders, the people fin- who were still kind of putting up a fight at Azovstal finally surrendered. We hope we'll be able to save the lives of our guys. There are severely wounded ones among them. They're being given care. I want to stress that Ukraine needs Ukrainian heroes alive. That's our principle. So there's been a steady stream of prisoners of war now basically coming out of that site. Uh, I saw something today that suggested it was up uh, above 1,700 at this point. I don't know how many more have have surrendered today. But the Russians are sort of clearing these people out of the site uh, and have been for the last three days. The wounded, uh, there were something like 50, 51, I think, wounded, seriously wounded, like wounded badly enough that they needed medical attention. They've been taken to uh, a hospital in Russian-controlled region of the Donbass. The rest have gone to uh, a town called Olyenivka. I apologize for uh, butchering that pronunciation. Also controlled by the Russians, also in the Donbass. It is unclear at this point what's going to happen to them. Uh, uh, Ukrainian officials seem to be uh, suggesting or they've suggested repeatedly that they could sort of trade, they could do prisoner swap to get these guys out. Uh, the Russians have suggested instead that they, they plan to put these uh, soldiers on some kind of trial or at least some of them on trial. It's not clear whether they want to want to try all of them. Uh, but that could end with, uh, you know, executions uh, at the at the uh, sort of uh, maximum case scenario, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Maybe they'll be willing to trade uh, some of the lower level folks and just keep the commanders on site from that site uh, and try them. I, it's it's hard to know what the Russians are planning at this point. 
Derek, as always, thank you for your incredible knowledge about U.S. foreign affairs. And uh, everyone who's listening, please sign up um, as a subscriber to our Substack, um, both our free newsletter. We're going to be rolling out some new content in the next few weeks. Uh, and also, of course, please subscribe so you get our bonus episodes. And as always, please to rem- uh, remember to review us on, on the iTunes app. It's actually very helpful. And share with friends. Now, please enjoy our interview with Anel Shaleen of the Quincy Institute about the UAE and Middle Eastern politics. See you next week, Derek. Bye-bye. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek uh, here, as always, with Danny Bessner. Uh, and we're very lucky to be joined for the second time uh, by the esteemed Anel Shiline from the Quincy Institute. She's a research fellow in their Middle East program, and she is, uh, I think, at this point, it's safe to say American Prestige's uh, golf correspondent, let's say, or, uh, you know, golf uh, resource. Uh, Anel, thank you very much for being on the program. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. Thank you for tolerating us a second time. Uh, <laughs> Derek only speaks for himself. Uh, uh, You're I, welcome. <laughs> uh, we are. Uh, I want to, you know, tell people we. I, I asked you to come on the program uh, a few weeks ago to talk about the Biden administration's sort of uh, groveling attempts to to get Saudi Arabia and the UAE to pump more oil and their refusal at one point apparently to even take Joe Biden's phone call. Um, but <laughs> that was such had, a king move. Jesus that, that Christ. Is, yeah, I cannot is, believe he did that. So we will get into that. We will get into that. But uh, there has been uh, a passing in the UAE, in UAE royalty or in the Abu Dhabi royal family, let's say, uh, Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed al Nahyan, the former emir now of Abu Dhabi and president of the UAE, uh, passed away, uh, I believe, on Friday, last Friday. Uh, He's been succeeded in both of those offices by the somewhat infamous at this point, Mohammed bin Zayed uh, al-Nahyan, his half-brother, who had been serving as crown prince of Abu Dhabi and really de facto, kind of the de facto guy running the day-to-day affairs of the UAE. This provides, I think, an opportunity for us to talk about the origins and structure of the United Arab Emirates, which is kind of a peculiar country emerged from the Trucial states, uh, the British protectorates and the the Persian Gulf. And it has a, a political system that functions, I think, somewhat uniquely that maybe people don't entirely understand. So why don't we start, given uh, recent events, Anel, with, with maybe you could uh, sort of explain to people how this country came to be uh, and how it came to be structured the way it is and how its kind of internal workings are are organized. Sure. <clears throat> you know, um, I, I think what's, what's especially important to keep in mind about the UAE, if you look at a map, Abu Dhabi is by far the largest emirate. You know, there, I believe their land mass accounts for about 87% of, of the whole country. And this also means that they control about 90% of the oil. Um, and so while it was interesting to see, for example, on Saturday, we had this sort of amusing video of the other six, the, the six heads of the other um, six emirates coming together in this so-called election, you know, and we had U.S. officials congratulating Mohammed bin Zayed or MBZ on his election, which which was an election of these six individuals. It's sort of an election, yeah. <laughs> um, and this reaffirmed the tradition that the Emir of Abu Dhabi is always elected president of the UAE. So MBZ's father, um, Sheikh Zayed, who, who really orchestrated and sort of is considered the founder of the UAE. He was the first president. He died in 2004. Um, His son, his eldest son, Sheikh Khalifa, uh, ruled then uh, until his recent death. But as you mentioned, he'd suffered a a massive stroke in 2014. And so MBZ has essentially functioned as the de facto head um, of, of the entire United Arab Emirates. Again, just keeping in mind that while there is kind of a notion that there's there's power sharing and there's relative autonomy, Abu Dhabi is 
by far the most wealthy, um, the most powerful, and that there has been a, a centralization of power. And one thing that's especially interesting to, to think about are some of the parallels to Saudi Arabia here. Um, you know, Sheikh Khalifa himself, I, as I recall, was was in his 70s um, and his brother, MBZ, is 61. And so I think many observers Young might have man anticipated- compared to the United States. <laughs> oh my, a yeah, spry I, man. I, I didn't know he was so ready to go. <laughs> Spring chicken over here. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I expect a lot of people probably assumed that MBS in Saudi Arabia was probably going to come to power because his father, the, the ruling, uh, the king, King Salman, um, is 86 and not in great health. And so it, it is kind of interesting noticing many of the parallels here and also just keeping in mind that part of why MBS has been able to assume uh, and and consolidate the power that he has has a lot to do with MBZ really seeing MBS as um, someone he could influence and mold and encouraging him to consolidate power in much the way that sort of the rulers of Abu Dhabi themselves have and, and in particular MBZ has um, so you know I I do think it's it's very important. Um, to keep in mind these these two individuals and the importance of the role that they play in their own countries and in the region, but also that the amount of cooperation we've observed relatively recently between these two countries is not um, sort of in keeping with historical precedent that actually historically there's been a lot more um, of a rivalry and a lot of suspicion. You know, all, all of the small Gulf states have reason to believe that Saudi Arabia would probably try to swallow them up um, if it could and uh, and perhaps might still be inclined to do so. <laughs> um, <laughs> Under the right <laughs> circumstances, perhaps. Well, no. you know, and, and, you know, for example, the, the, the blockade of Qatar that was almost an invasion you know, that, that the Saudis might have just marched right across the border and, and taken over, if not for, it sounds like Rex Tillerson. Uh, friend of the pot. <laughs> <laughs> big friend, big time Pre- preventing Trump from just greenlighting that. Um, so, you know, it, it's quite interesting now, you know, and there, there has been some question of if we're going to see any different policies under MBZ, which would have indicated that Sheikh Khalifa, even though he was in a diminished role, was still exerting some kind of influence. And I don't expect we're going to see that. I think MBZ has been in charge certainly since 2014, arguably even before 2014. Um, he is the eldest son of Sheikh Zayed's third wife, who's known as the, the mother of Sheikhs. He and his brother, his full brothers, um, are, are quite powerful within the UAE. And so if we see any changes, I anticipate that it wouldn't be so much in sort of Emirati foreign policy or strategy, but maybe we'll see even further empowerment of some of his brothers, people like Sheikh Tahnoun, for example. Uh, I, I want to say just to, to um, build on something that we were laughing about a couple of minutes ago, one of my favorite uh, golf facts is that the crown prince of Kuwait is 81. Uh, he's the <laughs> oldest. He's the oldest heir apparent, I think, in in the world. So that's uh, just a little fun fact about the, about the golf. <laughs> I, I I don't think I knew. Uh, that is a good fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> Some similarities with the leadership of a certain uh, American political party. Uh, but anyway, um, can you talk a, a little bit about sort of you 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 know you talked about the the kind of centralization of uh, UAE functioning and, and Abu Dhabi kind of amassing uh, more you know increasing amount of control over the other over the, the the country as a whole. But can you talk a little bit about some of the the historical kind of dynamic between the Emirates and and in particular Abu Dhabi and Dubai, which is sort of the other major uh, economic power, although it's had to be it had to be bailed out a couple of times, I think, by Abu Dhabi over the years, um, and sort of you know the the one of the things I'm, I, I like to get at is times when their interests haven't always aligned a hundred percent with one another. Yeah. So, you know, in thinking about the the so-called trucial states, you know, that name comes from the truces they had established with Great Britain 
and I believe perhaps even before the British state took over, it was more of a relationship with the, the British East India Company that had controlled the territory along the route to India. And so, you know, the fact that we now have Bahrain as an independent country and Qatar as an independent country, but then we have these seven emirates that are somewhat autonomous, but as we've said, increasingly uh, centralized, as well as Oman, <laughs> for example. I mean, Oman is a little bit different because it was an empire in its own right and had a lot more power, whereas these these small Gulf states that just sort of line the, the southern shore of, of the Persian Gulf or, or the Arabian Gulf, if you prefer, um, that they probably, and in Kuwait also, um, <clears throat> they probably would not have existed if not for these agreements that the British made to sort of empower a, a local strongman at the time. Um, and again, that, that it was the British that then prevented the, the Saudis from taking over all of this territory because they, um, you know, in, in sort of the course of establishing Saudi Arabia would have uh, been quite capable of expanding and, and sort of taking over the entire Arabian Peninsula. Um, but it was it was these relationships with Great Britain that then allowed these countries to to become established, but that they were all really quite impoverished until until living memory. You know, there that it was only in essentially the the fifties and sixties in some places like Kuwait, and then more recently, kind of the seventies and eighties for for places like Oman, for example, that you started to see the impact of the immense wealth of hydrocarbons, um, but that you still have elderly people in these communities that remember, you know, starving, um, you know, having, having absolutely no resources living on these, um, incredibly arid little stretches, um, along the, the shore of the Persian Gulf that, you know, traditionally they're, um, essentially pearl diving and pearl harvesting was one of the only sources of income for them and that that had collapsed as a result of, um, I believe, pearl cultivation that got started, I believe, in Hong Kong or in Asia, um, in East Asia. And so without the the oil wealth and the, the natural gas wealth that was discovered, um, we would we would never have heard of, of any of these places. And and again, they, they might have just ended up being swallowed by by somewhere like like a Saudi Arabia, for example. But instead, we have them playing um, a really crucial role um, because of all of their wealth. And, you know, obviously Dubai serving as a, a major hub for tourism and investment, um, kind of serving as the uh, a magnet for the rest of the Middle East. Like uh, if a young person has kind of the 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 brains or the education or the, the, the gumption for it, you know, Dubai being where they want to be. Whereas you know, maybe 30 years ago, that might've been Beirut, that might've been Cairo. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, so to get to your question about sort of the dynamic between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, you know, people are perhaps more likely to have heard of Dubai or have, you know, maybe transited a flight through Dubai or have seen images of Dubai, things like, you know, the, tallest building in the world, you know, the, that the island, Cruise the, movie. the sand, but, the right, sand right. world. Yeah. Right. Right. The Palm <laughs> Island. Yeah. American the, prestige the is actually on some of that. So we used our, <laughs> our uh, Ethereum gains to purchase great, some of the Dubai great, sand great investment, world. you know, given that it's all going to be underwater soon. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, so as, as you mentioned, Derek, uh, you know, although Dubai perhaps has um, a higher international profile, as I said, Abu Dhabi has all the money. <laughs> and so right. we saw, for example, after the 2008 financial crisis, um, Dubai collapsing, essentially, and Abu Dhabi needing to bail them out. Um, it's, it's interesting because Dubai is, in fact, at this point, no longer dependent on economically dependent on fossil fuel resources. It's one of the few countries that has made that transition, except that they are still dependent because they crashed. <laughs> so, right, they still rely on Abu Dhabi, right. <laughs> right, and Abu Dhabi bailed them out. And, you know, one outcome of that was, you know, originally the tallest building in the world was going to be known as the Burj Dubai, 
the right. power of Dubai. Instead, and then they, yeah. the, the you know Abu Dhabi insisted it be changed to the Burj Khalifa for the Emir, who just passed away, Allah Yarhamuhu. Um, so, you know, just Abu Dhabi sort of throwing its weight around and reminding, you know, even upstart Dubai, who's really in charge here. I think that dovetails nicely with uh, the UAE as a whole, kind of, you know, as part of, as this consolidation has been going on and as MBZ has been sort of dominating uh, uh, UAE politics since 2014, let's say, uh, with, you know, not just Abu Dhabi sort of throwing its weight around internally, but the UAE has been throwing its weight around uh, on on the global stage. Can you sort of talk a little bit about the rise of this country uh, to a position where uh, you know, they're able to not take Joe Biden's phone call. I don't mean to harp on that. We'll, we'll talk a little <laughs> bit more about that uh, in a minute. But but they become a major player. And part of it has to do with this uh, axis that they've they've kind of formed with the Saudis, which, uh, you know, has its tensions, but has, has put them, uh, you know, kind of sort of, uh, in the co-driver's seat in the Gulf in many ways. Uh, they're, they're a major factor in uh, a rival, the rivalry that's now sort of ending or at least temporarily kind of uh, being swept under the rug with uh, Qatar and Turkey. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a big driver of this kind of anti-Muslim brotherhood push uh, that emerged out of the Gulf in the, in the wake of the Arab Spring movement. Uh, how did this country become such a, such a major geopolitical player? I mean, I think the short answer to that is wealth and oil, um, and then you know, using their oil wealth to then invest their, Mubadala, uh, um, I believe, is, is sort of the, the sovereign wealth fund, um, where they've, they've, you know, made, made very wise investments, and, and you know, they're looking to continue to increase their wealth even after the oil runs out whenever that happens. Um, but so, no, you know, certainly I think it's, it, it, it does go back to Mohammed bin Zayed himself. I think he has played a very crucial role. And as, as you mentioned, you know, going back to 2014, but even, even immediately in the wake of the Arab Spring. So starting, you know, in 2011, 2012, and kind of, as it looked like Islamist movements were going to perhaps reshape what politics looked like in the Middle East. Obviously, we had Mohammed Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood president, taking power in, in Egypt in 2012, and then um, Al-Nahda in Tunisia, the Islamist uh, sort of Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated movement um, taking power as well. We had, even in some of the monarchies, uh, Islamist parties taking control of parliaments in places like Morocco, for example. Um, and that MBZ in particular, but also just the UAE more broadly, saw this as a major threat. Um, that in general, these kinds of popular movements could delegitimize the the rule of the the sort of long running um, Gulf monarchs or other monarchs, the, the Jordanian monarchy, the Moroccan monarchy. Um, and already there had been, um, some concern about, um, Islamist movements operating within the UAE. It's, it's sort of a tale that gets told about the whole Gulf, the extent to which in sort of the fifties and sixties, you had Muslim Brotherhood members who were fleeing from Nasser's Egypt, for example, or Hafez al-Assad Syria, who found refuge in the Gulf. Um, at a time when these countries had very few local individuals who had the education to staff their newly established universities, for example, or had the engineering background necessary to start um, sort of working their, their newly functional um, oil fields, for example. And so in many of these countries, you saw Muslim Brotherhood members in particular filling out the ranks of the bureaucracy, of educational institutions. And so it has been a process subsequently. You've, it's happened on different timelines in different countries. Um, and in the UAE, arguably, it, it happened somewhat earlier than somewhere like Saudi Arabia, where we've, we've seen this happening more recently, where you've seen purges of you know, individuals that are, that are accused of being Muslim Brotherhood or of having Islamist leanings. Um, so... 
you know, in in the UAE, there was this concern <clears throat> that an increasingly empowered Islamist movement, Muslim Brotherhood affiliated movement, um, could threaten the the control of the ruling families. And there was a big effort to crack down on that. And so this this was already a sort of a source of concern. Um, and then that was just sort of projected more broadly, the notion that if we saw Islamists successfully ruling in other parts of the of the region, whether it was Egypt or, you know, Islamist militias in, in Libya or in Syria taking control, Yemen is a little different because of sectarian differences. We can get into that. Um, but uh, because the Muslim Brotherhood is a Sunni movement, it's, so these are mostly <coughs> we're talking about. <clears throat> excuse me, um, activism among Sunni communities. Um, so, so the, the concern from MBZ in particular, and, and this then motivated Emirati foreign policy was to undermine Islamist controlled governments. So we saw this in Egypt, even just as recently as last summer with, um, Kais Saeed's power grab in Tunisia, where he dismissed Tunisia's parliament, um, which, effectively kneecapped, um, and that, uh, which had been part of sort of a, a coalition, um, that was in power in, in Tunisia's parliament. Um, and, and essentially it's been successful, you know, the, the UAE, um, managed to prevent what looked like a coming wave of, of Islamist sort of takeovers, um, managed to, to then send a lot of money and resources to the, the sort of counter-revolutionary governments that, that replace them. And I think this is part of why we're now seeing outreach from the UAE to countries like Qatar and Turkey, because they're, they're no longer seen as threat as, as threatening as they had been when Qatar was, you know, the UAE saw Qatar as sponsoring, Qatar was sponsoring right. some of these right. militias or, or groups, and or, you know, Tur I mean, Turkey as well is sort of the muscle, I guess. But right. like, they don't you know, have Turkey, money. Turkey, having provided really a um, a sanctuary for many, you know, especially um, Muslim Brotherhood members that fled Egypt after President Sisi took over in 2013. <clears throat> um, and what we've seen now, um, you know, Erdogan being in dire economic straits is is willing to to really shift here and in return for both Saudi and Emirati investment um, is is no longer going to provide a sanctuary for for these Islamists and um, so you know on on the one hand I, I do think um, it is encouraging to see that the UAE has perhaps, recognize that some of this more interventionist foreign policy it was pursuing may have been more costly um, and and less beneficial than they you know might have anticipated especially somewhere like Yemen but I think it, it also just speaks to the fact that it was successful they they disempowered Islamists yeah of the that, region I mean, it's, and it's easy to be magnanimous when you're the winner right exactly <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's get into Yemen and we can talk a little bit about sort of the, the role that the UAE has been playing uh, of late in Yemen. And I think that'll lead us into a more general discussion of, of where things stand right now. But, uh, the UAE, you know, intervened alongside the Saudis, uh, you know, at the, at the beginning of, uh, or toward the beginning of the, the civil war that broke out in Yemen in uh, 2014-2015, uh, you know, against the the rebels and Saralah or the Houthis, whatever you want to call them. Uh, um, but the UAE eventually reduced its role from sort of active combat to sponsoring predominantly, it seems like, uh, separatist southern militias who are nominally allied with the Yemeni government because they have a common enemy, but really their goal is not uh, very well aligned, I would say, with the Yemeni government. What, how do you think, was that just sort of a, uh, the Emiratis saw this faction as their sort of ticket to uh, maintaining influence in Yemen? Was there a more strategic calculation to get involved with the separatists or, or what what led them to to take that approach to the the war 
So the, you know, I think what the Emirates were trying to do by affiliating with separatists in Southern Yemen um, speaks to the geographic importance of that part of the world, essentially that by controlling not only um, the, the sort of Northern part of the, the Gulf of Aden, but also key islands such in the Bab al-Mandab Strait, for example. So Mayun Island sits right in, in the sort of Southern access to the Red Sea, which obviously then goes up to the Suez Canal and to Europe. Um, so this is a, st- a strategically super important part of the world. Um, and the UAE was concerned about uh, the possibility of, of Houthis controlling it. Um, I, I think arguably this, the Saudis may have been more worried about that. I think the, the Emiratis saw it as an opportunity for, for them to control it, or at least to have a significant um, sort of oversight role of the groups that, that would be in control there. And, and again, the MBZ and, and the UAE in particular are generally very clever about this. You know, we see the Saudis getting a lot of flack uh, for the horrible things they've been doing in Yemen, whereas the the Emirates realized that this was a PR disaster and essentially pulled out most of their troops at the end of 2019, um, but remained very much involved, continuing to support many of these militias, um, and arguably it was it was Emirati forces that were able to to achieve some of the military successes that we did see in Yemen um, previously before they withdrew. But, you know, so the, but the Emirates have realized that it's easier for them to, to sort of support militia groups, these separatist groups, than to necessarily try and go in and, and hold the territory themselves, which is more expensive. Part of, part of the difficulty there is also just their population is not very big. And so, you know, the, the numbers of, of Emirati service members who were killed in Yemen, you know, this was some of the, the, um, highest numbers, I think, of, of sort of combat fatalities that the, that the Emirates had experienced, at least in recent memory. Um, and so the, the war was not only costly, or their involvement in Yemen was not only costly from an international PR perspective, but also internally. Um, whereas for Saudi Arabia, much bigger population, um, I think increasingly we, if, if, if Saudis were permitted to express their opinion, they, we might also hear a little bit more criticism of the war coming from Saudis, but, uh, you know, neither Emiratis nor Saudis are, are really, uh, permitted to express their feelings about such things. But I, I do think that MBZ just uh, acknowledged that, um, there was an easier way for the UAE to, to try to exert control over Yemen. And it was by sponsoring these various militias. Although at the same time, we also see the UAE supporting the nephew of Ali Abdullah Saleh, who ruled Yemen for decades and, and was overthrown after the Arab Spring. Um, Tariq Saleh, his nephew, is not really a separatist. Um, you know, ostensibly, he would probably like to see something like a return to how things used to be with his family in charge. <laughs> um, and, and the UAE is also supporting him. And so, again, I, I think this just sort of speaks to their cleverness um, in sort of supporting different factions. We saw now with the new presidential leadership council, which um, was just appointed and uh, the the uh, president, the so sort of so-called president of Yemen, um, President Hadi, who had been nominally in charge another, since another Salah friend of the pod. stepped down. <laughs> Um, but had been in, in exile in Saudi Arabia since um, the Houthis took over the capital of Sana'a um, at the end of 2014. Uh, he gave up his power to this presidential leadership council, and many of the members of this council are backed by the UAE. Um, although, interestingly, there are also some members of Islah, which is the, the Islamist movement inside Yemen, which the UAE views as, as one would expect with a lot of suspicion. And so it is interesting. Um, it just demonstrates that the UAE did not, uh, exert total control. I think the Saudis probably exerted a lot more control over who ended up being appointed to this council. Um, but the UAE is still very much involved. Um, and, uh, in, in terms of thinking about, um, next steps, uh, we, 
we have have to ask what's going to happen when Yemen's truce ends in two weeks. We're recording on May 19th and the truce is set to end two weeks from today. So let's let's get into that a little bit and, and leave let's leave the UAE behind uh, and sort of talk about generally what's been going on in Yemen. Uh, as you alluded to, friend of the pod, uh, Rebel Mansur Hadi, uh, resigned his power, gave up his powers. I don't, I, I still don't friend know. Friend of if the pod, a new mic on American resigned. Prestige. <laughs> <laughs> Third mic, that's right. Here he is. Um, gave up his powers to this presidential council, which, as you say, is sort of. Uh, you know, brings the separatists in, but it's also seems to be controlled by, uh, I would say, more Saudi proxies than than UAE proxies, including Islam, which is an interesting sort of uh, example of the Saudis working with pretty much anybody since Islam is a, a Muslim Brotherhood party. Um, but uh, so we've seen that we've seen this two month ceasefire that's been in place uh, that's going to expire in a couple of weeks. Uh, what, where do things stand now in terms of the likelihood of that ceasefire being extended? I know they just finally came to an agreement about, uh, some limited, uh, air traffic in and out of Sena, which was supposed to be one of the kind of key, you know, ceasefire developments. And it's taken them a month and a half to get, get around to it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, I feel somewhat pessimistic about the chances of, uh, an extension. And yet, you know, they did agree. They did finally come to an agreement. So maybe that puts some momentum behind an extension. Where, where do you see things, uh, standing at this point in terms of the conflict? Well, you know, in general, I think that the truce has gone better than expected in the past. We've seen Yemen, you know, ceasefires in Yemen, uh, the last one, I think, was quite a while ago, back in 2016. Um, and those previous ceasefires had all broken down. Whereas the, it looks like this one is sort of going to remain shakily in place, at least until the 2nd of June, um, to the extent that the Saudis have not launched airstrikes and the Houthis have not launched transporter attacks at the Saudis or the UAE. Although, again, they, the, those attacks were pretty minimal. Many more were launched at Saudi Arabia. Um, however, we have seen violations on the ground. Both sides have accused the other side um, of violating, in particular around Ma'arib, uh, the reports that the Houthis are, are, are already violating, but also are, are getting in place um, for a renewed offensive against this strategic city, um, which is not surprising. This is often what happens during ceasefires. You know, each side sort of uses the opportunity to consolidate their positions. And I do think with the appointment of this, this new presidential leadership council, there's a lot of momentum and strength on the sort of Saudi and Emirati side. Um, and I, I anticipate that they are eager to try that out um, against the Houthis. And I think the concern is... Um, that we could see a return to, to much greater levels of violence after the truce ends. And personally, I think one of the only things that has, that, that could encourage, um, an extension of the truce would be pressure from the United States. I think part of why we've seen the truce hold this long and, and the Saudis, for example, as you said, finally opening Sana airport, they have allowed one flight. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well, you know, better than none. Baby steps. Baby steps. And, and I believe 10 ships, fuel ships, have been allowed to dock at Hodeida. Um, thus far, the Houthis have not yet opened the road to Daez, which was another crucial um, component of the agreement. But there apparently there are talks to do that as well in these final two weeks. Um, but again, I think the reason the, the Saudis have... Have exhibited some restraint here is because they they need to maintain the appearance that they are committed to ending the war that they want to get out, um, and and they're concerned that if they don't maintain that appearance, it will be harder for the United States to continue to to back them because the narrative we've seen continually from the Biden administration is the Houthis are the aggressors. The Houthis, although they haven't officially designated them terrorists, they do use that word. Um, to describe them. And we know that both the, the Emirates and the Saudis desperately want the United States to redesignate the Houthis as a terrorist organization, um, which was one of the first things 
Biden reversed (laughs) when he got to office, which Trump had done at the very end of his term. And so all of, you know, the end of the truce is also coinciding with the re the coming reintroduction of a Yemen war powers resolution. Um, I just got off a call with the folks, uh, really doing a lot of work on that effort. They expect it to perhaps be introduced as early as next week, perhaps the week after, um, to, to finally end U.S. support for military action in Yemen and specifically helping the Saudis that, um, this would really undermine what the Saudis are able to do because uh, two-thirds of the Saudi Air Force are U.S.-made and only function with um, American military contractors that sort of keep those planes supplied with spare parts and, and able to function. The final third is, is U.K.-made, and arguably if the U.S. withdrew support, um, we might also see the U.K. following suit. Um the the concern i think right now is there are rumors in washington of a possible formalization of the security commitment that the united states makes to not only saudi arabia but the uae possibly also egypt or bahrain maybe also israel um and this notion that you know there the Biden administration has experienced a lot of tensions with both the Saudis and Emiratis, as you said, the um, denying Biden's phone call, for example. Um, there's and and the implications this has had um, in the context of the the Russia Ukraine war, with oil prices rising quite high and the concerns about the midterms. And so this notion that the Biden administration might be prepared to engage in some kind of grand bargain whereby they formalize the security commitment, which up to this point is not formal. The U.S. is not, an, is not allied with any of these countries um, and so therefore does not have a sort of a, a binding obligation to defend them. It's just been sort of um, an, an informal commitment to their security as long as they kept pumping oil. And so I, I do think the concern right now is if the U.S. moves forward with that, and formalizes the security commitment. What does that mean for Yemen? What does that mean also just for American policy toward the region more broadly? Um, how might that incentivize more risky behavior by some of our, by some of these new new allies like Saudi Arabia, for example, towards Iran, because they know that they could, they would be backed up by the the most powerful military in the world. So I, uh, so on the one hand, we have what seems like this potentially brewing from the Biden administration, but on the other hand, we have Congress, which may in fact vote to end U.S. involvement. Um, and if that passes, as it, it successfully passed in 2019 and then was vetoed by Trump, the question is, would Biden veto something like this? Um, that would not look good, I think, for a Democratic president to, to veto a bill that would be mostly supported by Democrats. Um, so, you know, so so it's it matters for Yemen, but it, it also matters a lot for these questions of the future of U.S. policy towards the region, as well as sort of the balance of powers between the executive branch and, and Congress. So I think um, we could maybe wrap on, uh, wrap up on this, and you you uh, got into the the dynamic of um, you know sort of the the collapse in relations or, or seeming collapse in relations, uh, which seems to me to be uh, based on perceptions. It's based on sort of you know Mohammed bin Salman's hurt feelings that Joe Biden said some you know negative things about him during the campaign it's based on uh the fact that the Biden administration sort of has half-heartedly participated in negotiations about you know restarting the Iran nuclear deal which they don't like and and it's sort of so it's rooted in these kind of bits and pieces of things that the Saudis and the Emiratis find offensive in some way and, and consequently you know they haven't been on board with uh, this program of isolating Russia, you know, because of the Ukraine war, they haven't been receptive to the idea of pumping more oil to help, uh, you know, kind of get prices, global prices down. Um, I guess, you know, can, there, there's some speculation. I mean, I've seen some speculation that 
basically MBZ and MBS want to wreck the Biden presidency and force, uh, you know, kind of bring Donald Trump back. Basically, they want to rematch in 2024 and they want to uh, do what they can to ensure that Donald Trump comes back and puts everything back the way they want it. Uh, do you do you what's your sort of overall assessment of where the relationship is? You wrote the piece for uh, Quincy the uh, about the sort of very high level delegation that the administration sent in the wake of Sheikh Khalifa's death and what that means in terms of, you know, kind of begging the Emiratis to, to be nice to us again. Um, and, you know, what's your assessment of the situation? Do you think there is some something to this uh, idea that they're at this point just trying intentionally to, to sort of sink the Biden presidency? Uh, I mean, I think that that's been fairly clear. Um, you know, not only did we just see the the huge investment the Saudis made in Jared Kushner's latest venture. What was it, um, $2 billion in his hedge fund? Right, yeah. right, which is, you know, the vast majority of, of all the money that's in the hedge fund is just well, from so Saudis. so corrupt. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the big question there, was that a thank you or was this a sort of, you know, payment for future uh Future services. I'm sure they just liked his prospectus and it's all very on the up and up. It's fine. <laughs> I think it's probably both. Yeah, no, Danny, you're probably right. It is probably both. Um, and, you know, and, and part of this also just gets to this question of um, will Saudi Arabia normalize with Israel? And knowing that that's quite unlikely as long as Salman remains on the throne. Um, but ostensibly, uh, MBS, as soon as he's in power, may decide to go ahead and do that anyway. You know, he, he, regardless of, of the sort of cookies that the U.S. provides, you know, he's observed how the UAE has benefited. Um, in particular, we know that, uh, as, as I'd said, you know, historically Saudi Arabia and the UAE were more rivals. And in the past few years, we've seen MBZ really cultivating MBS. Um, but now we're seeing Saudi Arabia reasserting itself and really trying to perhaps usurp the place of the UAE as this transit hub, as sort of a, an area for, for tourism and for um, investment and that, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is much larger and has a lot more to offer, arguably, <laughs> in theory, although they're years behind the UAE in terms of sort of having a legal framework in place or, or normative framework in place to deal with a big influx of, of foreigners and money and investment. And, um, but we know that is MB, MBS's goal. Uh, and so he might be interested in normalizing with Israel just from that perspective, that this will be sort of helpful as Saudi Arabia is looking to assert itself regionally. Um, so, you know, there's there's just this question of like, these countries have shown that they prefer Trump or a, a Trump-like figure, um, arguably probably prefer Republicans in general uh, to Democrats. And yet we may have this Democratic administration bending over backwards, formalizing the security commitment to them, which would be an open-ended commitment. Whereas whatever the Saudis sort of gave in response, you know, so increasing production on oil, like, Sure, that may matter between now and the midterms, may not, who knows. Um, but that isn't, you know, the, this essentially, you know, although the Saudis can influence the price of oil, there are a lot of factors there. And, you know, if, if it were really just about oil, there are other things the U.S. could do to try to, to lower that price. For example, lifting sanctions on Venezuela, which has been talked about as well, or rejoining the Iran nuclear deal. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and again, this question of if the United States formally commits to Saudi security, what implications would that have for Yemen in terms of the U.S. then having its hands tied and being forced to, to perhaps even deploy troops? Like, is, is that what that would mean to, to defend Saudi Arabia from, from what the Houthis are, are doing in Yemen? Um, we know the Houthis have said that they're going to start targeting desalinization facilities in Saudi Arabia, which, uh, you know, they've gone after Aramco facilities in the past. Um, they have targeted some uh, water facilities, but, you know, that 
that would pose a real threat um, to the Saudis. And, and again, if the United States has committed to their defense, what would that necessitate in, in response? Um, so, you know, I think all of this, it is, it's just sort of fascinating seeing how this is all coalescing at once. The end of the Yemen truce, the forthcoming war powers resolution, this possible grand bargain that Saudi, that the United States may be about to strike with these countries. Um, uh, the, the interminable negotiations over the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and, and it's possible we will see a, a big shift. But again, the question just being, to what extent is this really very smart <laughs> of the Biden administration? Why would they do this? Um, and, and who's really driving that um, from within the administration? On that note, I think, uh, you know, let's assume the worst and and go from there, because that's usually right. Uh, Anel Shilain, uh, thank you again, of the Quincy Institute. Thank you again so much for coming on the program. Uh, we'll have a link to, if you want to catch Anel's work, uh, check out her writing at responsiblestatecraft.org. Uh, uh, we'll have a link to your latest piece on the uh, Sheikh Khalifa delegation and the, the state of, of U.S. Gulf relations. Uh, Thank you so much again, and and I'm sure we will uh, have you back because there's always so much to talk about in this part of the world. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me.